Morning Life Church. It's good to see you. Um, and as Matt has already said, you know, whether you're here in the room with us or watching via our live stream today, uh, we are grateful that we can continue to gather together in this season. Um, I hope you have a Bible with you or a way to put the Bible in front of you on your phone. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 2 this morning. And so I'll let you go ahead and find that. This is the second week that we have been uh, walking through this book in the Old Testament. I'm just going to take us uh, through the end of the summer, and it'll help you, I think, if you have the words in front of your face today. So I'll let you find that. Um, I do have to confess something this morning. Um, I expected uh, to walk in the doors today uh, with a lot more joy and enthusiasm and exuberance than I ultimately did. Um, yeah, when I, I remember thinking back to this day, what this day would look like, uh, thinking forward to what this day would look like three months ago when the season of semi-quarantine and self-isolation was beginning, um, as we were looking forward to this day, the day when we would be back together, I remember we talked about and thought that that would be a, a day of a lot of celebration and a lot of joy and that we would come through the doors with enthusiasm and exuberance together. And um, I just have to confess that like all week long as we prepared for this and prayed about this, and as I walked through these doors this morning, I didn't feel much or really any of that enthusiasm and exuberance. And I hope you don't get me wrong. I am grateful that we can be here. I'm glad that we can be kind of on this journey towards gathering again and to have taken one significant step in that journey of opening the doors of our building again. Um, but I'm just, I'm not excited. And I'm not excited really for a couple of reasons. First, because uh, this doesn't look like what it normally looks like, right? And what we long for it to look like. And even in like the awkward elbow bumps, I saw people on the staff giving each other toe bumps today. Like we long to hug each other and we long for the room to be full again we long to hear one another's voices as we sing robustly. And I know some of you right now are like, man, Sharp got to take his mask off when he stood on stage. I'm so jealous of that guy right now. And, and I get it. Like, we don't, this isn't what we want. Um, we long for it to be what we remember. And so I haven't been excited because I knew that today would really just be a shadow of that. Uh, but much more significantly, um, I found that it was just impossible to be excited as we walk through the doors this morning because of the really hard and difficult things we are clearly walking through as a culture right now. And Matt's already spoken to that, I thought, really eloquently, so I don't want to necessarily say more than what he said or add to what he has said, um, other than to say my wholehearted yes to what he has said. Um, but it just strikes me that the things that we're beholding right now well, they're like a spectacle that we can't take our eyes off of, right? The, the pain and suffering that are coming to the surface that have been there for centuries but that are coming to the surface because of yet another example of racial injustice, um, it's impossible to like divert your eyes from the spectacle of that. Like, and so whether you're watching that on your phone or your computer or your television screen or simply seeing glimpses of it in the newspaper, like it's, it's really just so profoundly difficult to pull our eyes away from the spectacle of other people's justified and real pain. And so I, I just, man, it seemed 
it seemed weird uh, to come through the doors, hard to come through the doors. Um, and then I heard the band warming up this morning, and I started to gather with some people. And in the end, I was so grateful for the gathering, as limited as it is. Um, because I think what we really need, I know what we really need, um, is for even just these few moments that we're together, to take our eyes off of the spectacle of pain and hurt that we're witnessing in our culture, and to set our eyes on the true spectacle that is the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And it's actually, this is key, it's actually only when we take our eyes off of those things and set our eyes onto Jesus that we will actually be prepared to deal with those things. It's only when we gaze upon Christ in his beauty and in his fullness that we will find from him the resources that we need to be salt and light and healing and comfort and whatever else the world needs us to be in this season. And so 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that it's as we behold his glory that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So when we set our eyes on Jesus, we make progress in our sanctification and we become more like him, not because we're looking at the pain in the world around us, but because we're setting our eyes on he who bore our pain for us. And so what we need right now is just to, to remember and to remind one another that Christ is our sure and steady anchor who will not fail us in a storm. What we need to remember right now and is to set our eyes on the fact that Jesus is king of kings and that he sits at this very moment seated at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling over all things with perfect power and wisdom, full of love and grace. We need to be transformed by him so that we can face the challenges that we face today, so that we can love the people that we're called to love today, so that we can bear the burdens that we're called to bear today. And so I'm so grateful that we're here, even though I wasn't, frankly, all that excited to be here. I'm glad that you're with us. Let's pray together, and then we'll turn to Ecclesiastes this morning. Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame and bore the full and just penalty that our sins deserved. But he was vindicated in his sacrifice for us, Lord, and he has in his vindication and victory risen to the right hand of glory. And as we behold him now, full of grace and truth, he is indeed glorious. And he is indeed what we need. He is indeed who we need. And so we pray that as we gather around his word, a word that testifies to him today, that we will see him as he is, that we will see him in his love and perfection and beauty and glory, and that you will change us as we set our eyes on him. Holy Spirit, we need your help to accomplish that. We need your help to understand these words that are before us. We need your help to obey them and apply them. And so we ask that you would move in us now as we set ourselves under the teaching of your word. We pray that in Jesus' name today. Amen. So one truth that both the Old and New Testaments seem to just so consistently and sweetly lay before us as the people of God is the truth that this world 
is not our home. Here we are temporary residents, not permanent citizens. Our citizenship is a heavenly citizenship first and foremost, not an earthly citizenship first and foremost. And so we, we look forward to a home that is to come and we recognize that this is not our home. This is why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 said of Abraham, he said, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He's stressing the tents because they're, they're temporary. Heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing 2 Corinthians 5, he says that we all look forward to a heavenly home that is not built by human hands. And the point that these verses are making, it's, it's not a complex one. The point is that our true home is in heaven. It's not here. We are temporary residents here. We are passing through en route to our eternal home. And so we recognize that to be a believer in this world is to be a stranger, a a misfit, so to speak. We have no real sense of belonging here. We are to have no sense of permanence here. But do we? Obviously, it's easy for those who follow Jesus to lose sight of the world that is to come. It's easy for us to live as resident Christians rather than nomadic Christians, to live as if our greatest treasure is here and not in heaven. And we display that by the the sort of permanence in the choices that we make, the choices of the homes that we live in, the investments that we make, the priorities that we pursue. So often we live like here and now, is what matters most. And we hold too tightly to the things of this world. We do that, expressing the fact that in the end, we believe that in this world, we will find the joy and the fulfillment and the peace that we long for. Now, Jesus knew that we would have this problem. In his most famous sermon, the most famous sermon ever preached, he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus knew that our temptation would be to to invest treasure on earth rather than in heaven, to act as if it's on earth that our permanence lives rather than in heaven. And of course, God the Father knew that we would struggle in the same way, which is why he gave us, I think, the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week, as we looked at the first 11 verses of this book, we considered the fact that the world reveals to us that there's no lasting gain from human toil. Like human labor, it does not give us anything that lasts. And we considered the the statement that really is the theme of the book in chapter one, verse two, where the writer, he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he goes on in verses three through 11 to explain to us that this is how the world works. The world reveals the fact that everything is vanity. 
Our passage today, it makes the same argument, but not now from how the world works. It makes that argument from human experience. And this is where I think it's helpful to remember that the human experience in question in the book of Ecclesiastes is the experience of King Solomon. He is the preacher, or at least his wisdom is the wisdom that the preacher preaches. And so now, when this passage considers the experience of this man, it's of the man who was of the wisest, among the wisest of men to ever have lived, among the richest of men to have ever lived, among the most accomplished and successful of men ever to have lived. It's his experience that he looks upon now, and as he looks back upon it, he says, all of it is vanity. The preacher reflects on everything that Solomon pursued, and he says that because of one key reality, none of it matters. All of it's vanity. All of it's meaningless. What's that one key reality? Well, it's the reality of death. Death, our passage teaches us, makes all things vanity. But as we'll see, our passage doesn't stop there. Our passage shows us then how to live in light of death with joy in a world that is vain to the glory of God. And so let me read this passage. It's, it's long today. Um, we're going to read from 1.12 all the way through the end of chapter 2. And so because it's so long, let me give you just a couple of things to listen for as we read together. First of all, I hope you'll listen for the phrase, under the sun. When Ecclesiastes talks to us about life under the sun, he's talking to us about life that's lived from an exclusively horizontal, secular perspective. It's a life that does not consider the fact that there is also a vertical perspective with a God who reigns in heaven. And so life under the sun is life just as we see it with our eyes, not with our hearts of faith. But you also to listen for the phrase, all is vanity. Eight separate times we're going to hear that in this passage. And remember that when Ecclesiastes talks about vanity, it's talking about a mist or a vapor. The preacher is telling us that life is like this ephemeral temporary thing that you can't touch. It has no substance. It has no permanence because all is vanity. And so I pray that you'll listen to the various things in this passage that prompt the preacher to say that everything is vanity. And then I want you also to listen for the phrase, a chasing after the wind. Five times in this passage, we'll hear that. The preacher uses it to describe what life is like when we live as permanent residents here rather than as sojourners in the world. So let's listen now to the word of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 2, 26. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom 
and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? 
for all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord for us. All right, so that's a long passage, as I said. Thanks for hanging in there. Um, As we work through it today, I think it'll help us to recognize that the passage takes up three different perspectives or three different angles as the preacher moves through it. And so the first perspective or angle that we can see here is the perspective of the great human pursuit. What is that pursuit? Well, today, as you sit here, whether you realize it or not, whether you can admit it or not, what you pursue most in life is a simple thing. It's happiness. That's the thing that you want. That's the thing that I want. That's the desire that drives every decision that we make. Every other thing that we pursue in life, we're pursuing it because we hope to, through it, find happiness. This is commonly believed, not just by Christians today, it's believed by many people. Here's one famous Christian thinker, though, who speaks to this. This is what Blaise Pascal said. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, the desire to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So if Pascal's right, I think he is, then everything we do, it's driven by our desire to be happy. And I think you can think about that, right? Everything that you have done so far today, you have done in order to make yourself happy. And so perhaps you slept in, or perhaps you didn't sleep in because you wanted to get up early and get some chores done, but you did that to make yourself happy. You had breakfast because you wanted to be happy. Maybe you took a longer than usual shower because the kids were arguing downstairs and you didn't want to have to go down and deal with that. Then you put on clothes that you feel like you look nice in because you wanted to be happy. And then you came here because in some way in your brain, this contributes to your happiness. And every other decision that you make today is ultimately going to be a decision based out of what you think will make you happy. If you ever deny yourself something, it's because you want to be happy in the long run. If you ever gratify yourself in some way, it's because you don't care about the long run, you want to be happy right now. But every single decision we make, we make born out of our pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness, that's what drives us, both on the surface and at the deepest levels of our lives, whether we're finding a spouse or earning a living or raising children or trying to stay in shape, these are all expressions of our desire to be happy. By the way, that's not a bad desire. 
There's nothing wrong with being happy or the desire to be happy. In fact, we're created in the image of a God who is in himself happy. And so it makes sense then that we would desire happiness as well. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in the triune God, there is delight. So we are wired for delight as well. It's not wrong to want to be happy. It's wrong to look for it in the wrong places. This is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going on about. And if you look back to the beginning of our passage, chapter 1, verse 12, there's a little bit of an autobiographical note to this passage. The preacher, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And then notice what he's searching for. He says, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So I'm looking at everything under heaven, but why is he looking? Why is he searching? He says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And so it's like he's saying, I'm looking around at everything and all I see is this unhappiness. And so I'm going to go searching for happiness. This is the great human pursuit. It's the pursuit of happiness in all that we do. And and as the preacher searches for it, it's like he's chasing it, right? Like he just goes from, from object to object to object, hoping to find in those objects happiness. He begins with wisdom. In verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And we remember Solomon, he was known for his wisdom. People came the world over to hear from him because of his wisdom. But then he adds verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. And so he says, it didn't make me happy. And so he moves from the pursuit of wisdom to the pursuit of pleasure. Chapter two, verse one, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And so as much pleasure and whatever pleasure he gave to himself, it didn't ultimately make him happy. So he moved on to laughter. He tried to amuse himself to death. Verse two, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? Because it didn't make him happy. Verse three, he moved on to drink. He said, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Still, he found that it didn't make him happy. And so then he adds to his wisdom and his pleasure and his laughter and his drink, the pursuit of accomplishment and women and wealth and power, beginning in verse four, he just describes all of the things that he accomplished, the great works that he built, the gardens and the parks and the vineyards and the houses, the pools to water the forest. He talks about all of the people who worked for him, the male and female slaves. He talks about all of his possessions, the herds and the flocks. He talks about the buildings that he built and the silver and the gold and the treasure that he accumulated and all of the people who served him and all of the women he slept with. And he says all of this were the delights of the sons of man. But then we have to ask, did it work? Did he find in those things happiness? He says in verse nine, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me 
And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Can you imagine that? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. And so he says, for a moment I enjoyed it. For a moment I delighted in it. For a moment it made me happy. The work and the women and the the accumulation of stuff, all of it seemed to make me happy just for a moment. But then, verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so the preacher who had everything. I mean, we're talking like A-list celebrity everything, right? This guy makes Tony Stark look like a beggar given everything that he's accumulated and the pleasure that he has at his fingertips anytime he desires it. He considered all of it, and maybe for a moment it made him happy, but his happiness did not last. His happiness was a vanishing vapor for him. Something inevitably bursts that bubble in his pursuit of happiness. What is it? Well, it's the permanent human problem. It's the problem that we can't avoid, the reality that we can't escape no matter what. The thing that bursts the bubble of the preacher's pursuit of happiness is death. The preacher teaches us that death is the permanent problem that brings our pursuit of happiness to an inglorious end. Because after all of the preacher's projects and possessions and pleasures have run their course, he realizes that he is left only with sandcastles on the beach. That's what he turns to, beginning in verse 12, but let me just highlight a couple of the things that he says. In verse 14, he says, The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And so it would seem like it would be better to be wise, right? To walk in light rather than in darkness. But no, he says, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. That same event is death. He adds in verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. And so he hates that. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after the wind. So death comes both to the wise man and to the fool, and the preacher, he hates life because of it. And then to add insult to injury, he realizes Nobody remembers the wise man or the fool after they're dead. You'd think maybe we'd forget the fool but remember the wise? No, the preacher says, there is no remembrance of either after death. All is vanity. He goes on, verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So we heard back in verse 10 that the preacher took pleasure in his toil, but now very quickly he's acknowledging, I hated all my toil. Why? because he realizes that he dies, and he has to leave the fruit of that toil, the fruit of his labor, to the man who will come after him. And, verse 19, who knows 
whether he will be wise or a fool, that he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity, he says. He says it's vanity to spend your life building something only to leave it to someone and you have no idea if that person is wise or a foolish chump. You have no control over how that person will handle the things that you leave to them. And so all of it is vanity. Death is what makes it vanity. The preacher, he knows that his inevitable death means that he will inevitably leave everything that he has to someone else. He just can't handle it. He says, all is vanity. I mean, we should pause right there and, and just give ourselves that reality check, shouldn't we? Like in all of our pursuit of happiness in life, whether we pursue that through pleasure or treasure, whether we pursue that through accumulating stuff or accumulating relationships, there will be a day when we give all of those things away when they bury us six feet under. I mean, every single possession we own, it's the stuff of future garage sales at best. In reality, our kids will throw half of it away after we're gone. Right? We don't own anything that we can take with us. Death should sober us to the vanity of the things we pursue in life. But as the preacher discusses that, as we discuss that, that leaves us with an obvious question. And the question is, what's the point? Right? If we gain nothing from all of our toil, why do we bother? And that's where the preacher lands in verses 22 and 23. He says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? You know, what does man gain from all of his work? Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And so the preacher seems to say that none of it matters, that all of it's worthless, all of it's vanity, and we should just forget about all of it. Now, if that seems like a perspective that is a bit too bleak or pessimistic for you, I think I would just humbly suggest that there's a, there's a decent chance that you haven't really seriously considered the brevity of your own life. Right, if all this talk about death bursting the bubble of our pursuit of happiness leaves you in a place where you just don't really think that there's a point to anything, I think that's the right track. If you're thinking, no, 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 this is too pessimistic, this is too bleak, this isn't realistic, then I think there's a decent chance that perhaps you need to consider, you need to meditate on, you need to think upon the reality of your own death. Because as people, we're, we're really good about avoiding the subject of death. We fill our lives with things that distract us from the inevitability of death. We use stuff in our lives, the things that give us comfort, to kind of insulate us and hide us from the reality that everything under the sun is vanity and that death is inevitably coming. Peter Kreef's a philosopher and he, he talks about this tendency in us when he says this, he says, if you are typically modern, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. 
So death is the hole in the middle of our living room floor. And our solution to that is to distract ourselves from it with wallpaper. It's just with the accumulation of stuff and pleasure and comfort and all these things. They're just our effort to distract ourselves from the fact that death is coming for us. He goes on and he makes the metaphor even more poignant. He says, you find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house. The rhinoceros is wretchedness and death. How in the world can you hide a rhinoceros? Easy. Cover it with a million mice. Multiple diversions. That's what he says the stuff of our lives is like. Our work, our relationships, our comforts, our pleasures, our material things. The stuff of our lives. They're just an attempt to disguise from us the reality of the real problem. The fact that there's a rampaging rhinoceros wrecking our lives, running through the middle of our living rooms. But church, death is inevitable. It comes for everyone. And no matter how long we want to hide from it, we can't in the end. And so the better question to ask is not, how do we deal with death? The better question is, like, how do we live life in a way that actually means something, given the fact that death is coming? And given the fact that death is coming and everything under the sun is vanity, is there any way we can be truly happy? And that's where the preacher takes a turn that I think is so helpful. It was so helpful for King Solomon, and it's so helpful for us today. See, throughout the passage, it's like the preacher is bursting the bubbles of our pursuit of happiness, right? Wisdom, pleasure, possessions, accomplishments. He just keeps bursting those bubbles, and death is the sharp needle that he uses to pop those to help us realize that none of those things make us happy. But the surprising turn at the end of this passage is the last of all, the preacher bursts death's bubble. And he does that when he lays before us what I'm calling the true human perspective. Look at just the last three verses, starting in verse 24. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, at first glance, that doesn't sound particularly helpful. It just sounds a little bit like carpe diem, seize the day, right? Like make the most of what you've got. But I want you to notice that there is something subtle that has changed in the way the preacher is talking to us now. For virtually the entirety of the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, we have heard no mention at all of God. But now, in rapid fire succession, verses 24 through 26, God shows up and he changes things. And I want you to notice the special attention to what God gives in these three verses. In verse 24, it's God who gives eating and drinking and finding enjoyment in our work. In verse 25, God gives us the ability to enjoy life. And then read verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This 
the idea of a sinner gathering and collecting just to give it away. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And so to the one who pleases God, God gives, according to these three verses, eating, drinking, pleasure, wisdom, knowledge, joy. Do you see the move that the preacher is making? Do you see what he is trying to say to us? See, friends, death has a helpful way of reorienting us to the limits of what the world can offer us. When we remember that the world cannot ultimately make us happy, that frees us to find our happiness in God himself. And when we find our happiness in God himself, rather than in the things of the earth, then that frees us to enjoy the gifts that God gives us, even though they are the things of this earth. So a few years ago, when my kids were younger than they are now, I remember regularly that I would come home from work and find one or more of my children um, coloring at the kitchen table while my wife made dinner. And invariably, I'd, I'd walk through the door, and someone would look up and see me, and they'd, their eyes would light up, and they'd say, Dad, I made something for you. And they'd hold up this, this art project that they'd been working on. And I'd walk in the kitchen, and I'd take what they had given me, and I'd look at it, and it would be a white piece of paper with just like crayons scribbled all over it. And I'd be like, that's great. Thank you so much. What is it? <laughs> and they would have to explain to me that it was a house or a walrus or the worst was when they would draw, draw pictures of me, right? And I'm like, that's really what you think I look like? I need to hit the gym before I come home tomorrow. Anyway, um, it, they would just give me this gift, and it wouldn't make any sense to me. Like the gift itself, it wouldn't really mean that much. But what it would mean something, I mean, none of my kids, at the time at least, you know, were, were headed to the New York Art Institute or, or whatever. Kids, I'm sorry. Today, maybe they are. But at the time, we were not headed there. But my point is that the gift that they gave, like itself, wasn't that valuable. But what was precious to me, what I treasured then and still treasure now, is the relationship with them out of which they gave me that gift. And in the same way, this is, this is what death teaches us about the things that God gives us. Right? Death teaches us that the things God gives us they don't matter that much. What matters is the relationship out of which God gives those things. But when we have that relationship, that frees us to actually enjoy what God has given us. Because we're not looking to it for meaning. We're not looking to it for value. We're not looking to the things that God gives us to fill us up. We know that the things God gives us can't do that. Only God himself can do that. But once we realize that only God himself can do that, that puts us in a place where the things that he does give us, we can actually enjoy them. We don't have to look to them, expecting them to make us happy. Because all is vanity. We don't need them to make us happy, though. Because only God can do that, and he does it so freely. See, at the root of this, what we're really talking about here, what the preacher is really talking about here, even though he never uses the word, we're talking about worship. And we're talking about idolatry in worship. Idolatry, it's not bowing down at a little stone or wooden statue. That's not it. Idolatry is making any created thing into an ultimate thing. 
Idolatry is making anything that God has made the object of our joy or trust instead of God himself. Idolatry is looking to anything that exists under the sun for what only our creator who exists above the sun can give us. And once we understand that it's only the creator that can make us happy, then we'll stop looking to created things. We'll stop looking to idols to fill us. And instead, the things that God gives us, we'll be able to enjoy them. By the way, there's just a really simple test that we can use if we want to discern if we're trusting in the things that God gives us more than we're trusting in God himself. There's a simple test that we can use if we want to measure or assess if we're finding our joy in God's gifts to us rather than in God himself. It's a fill-in-the-blank test. You can fill in this blank. If I only had that, then I'd be happy. Or the flip side of the same question. If I ever lost that, then I'd be devastated. Whatever you put in that blank, however we fill in those blanks, it reveals what we worship. And so some of us in this way, we we really think that what we need in life is a better job. And if we think, if I could just have that better job, then everything would be better. Or what we think we need in life is a spouse. We think, if I could just have that special someone, then everything would be better. We think, man, my kids, they're frustrating to me. If if my kid could just get his act together, if I could just have a kid on the honor roll or who who made the A team or or, or whatever, then I'd be happy. That's idolatry. On the flip side, if we we fear that we're going to lose the success that we've accumulated for ourselves, in business, if we're gonna lose the reputation that we've earned in our community, if we fear that we're gonna lose our comfort or our financial security, it's a sign that we've made those things into idols. And Ecclesiastes, I think, just so helpfully bursts that bubble by reminding us that none of those things will last. Death comes for us all. Everything we gain in this life will ultimately lose it. But if we know the Lord, we can find happiness in him and enjoy the gifts that he's given us. You know, a lot of us have grown up with a version of Christianity uh, that doesn't know what to do with pleasure. In fact, like that version of Christianity has basically said, if it feels good, it's probably sin and so you shouldn't do it. Like a lot of us, we've understood this this idea that God doesn't really want you to be happy and that's, that's not biblical at all. Church, the Lord wants you to be happy. He wants you to be first and foremost happy in him. And then when we are happy in him, we're freed and empowered and released to be happy in the things that he gives us. Not because they can fill our bucket, only he can, but precisely because they can't fill our bucket and we're not expecting them to. And so church, I say to you today, your creator He wants you to enjoy the gifts that he's given to you. He wants you to enjoy those gifts as expressions of his love for you. So long as you recognize their limits. So long as you recognize that those gifts are not him. We can do this. And we can be what we long to be. Happy. One final point. It's from verse 26. Notice who it is that's receiving these gifts from God. Verse 26 says, For to the one who pleases him, 
God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy to the one who pleases him. Well, that begs the question, who is the one who pleases God? Who is the one to whom God gives wisdom and everything else? Short answer, it's not you. And it's not me. There is, in history, only one man who never looked to created things for his happiness and value and joy. There is in history only one man who never treasured what is made more than he treasured his maker. There is one man who, in all of history, who never for a moment forgot that he was only a sojourner in this life. Of only one man in all of history has God truly said, this is my beloved son, of him I am well pleased. That one man is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And by virtue of the gospel, church, if we recognize our sin, if we repent of our sin, if we trust in Jesus' saving work in faith, then we are united to Christ by that faith so that the Father never sees our sin, but instead only sees and always sees Christ's perfection. And what this means is that what is true for Jesus becomes true for us as well if we've trusted him in faith. And so because the Father is pleased with Christ, he's also pleased with those who are united to Christ by faith. Because the Father delights in Christ, he also delights in those who are united to Christ by faith. Because the Father showers upon Christ his love and his favor and his affection, he showers those same things on those who are united to him by faith. And so we know, church, that it's because of Christ that the Father longs to give us the good gifts of life. And I just ask you this morning, doesn't that stir your heart? Doesn't that create in you wonder and awe and joy? I pray that it does. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the perfect life that you lived for the substitutionary sacrifice that you made on the cross for us. We thank you for the fact that in you, we have access to all of the gifts that God longs to give you. We have access to all of the delight, all of the joy, all of the love that the Father has been showering upon you from before the foundation of the earth. We have access to the good gifts of God through your work, Jesus, and we praise you for that. And we pray that in light of those things, you would help us to delight in God. Help us to delight in your Father. Help us to delight in our relationship with him. Help us not to look to the things of this earth for happiness, but rather help us to see them as good gifts from our Father's hand. And may we daily delight in who he is and all that he does for us, knowing that he alone will and does make us happy. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.